Hello everybody uh, and Kia ora. Today we will take you through uh, the development and key principles uh, and learnings of the Austro's new uh, engineering guideline for bridge asset management. We have more than 500 people registered for today's session, so welcome to you all and thanks for joining us. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a communications officer at Austroads, and I will be moderating today's session together with Sally Farqua, um, Aircom's senior engineer, Bridge Asset Management, who will moderate the Q&A at the end of the session. Uh, first of all, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to Elders past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the regional people of New Zealand. A little bit about Austroads. Uh, we are the collective of Australasian uh, transport and traffic agencies and our focus is to support our member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. The project that we are focusing on today was delivered under the Transport Infrastructure Program, which is managed by Ross Guppy. A little bit of housekeeping for today's session. Um, so our presenters will speak for 40 minutes uh, and then we will have a Q&A session for 15 minutes. The report today's session is based on and the slides can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, which you will find on the right hand side of your screen. There is also a question section there, so please use it to send us your questions for the Q&A at any time during the webinar. If you could name the slide number that your question relates to, that would be very helpful for us to answer your question as best as we can. You can also use the same question section to let us know if you have any technical problems. But just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your internet connection. So leaving the session, closing your browser and rejoining again uh, via your registration link usually helps. Uh, and this session is being recorded and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website. And also if you listen to podcasts, uh, you can find Austroads in your podcast app. And it gives me great pleasure uh, to introduce our presenters for today. Uh, Barry Wright, uh, Dr. Toril Papi and Peter Shaw. Uh, we will first hear from Barry Wright. He has over 40 years of experience in bridge engineering, asset management and design management. These uh, include significant periods in both uh, the public sector for the New Zealand Government Highways Agency and also in consultancy roles um, in New Zealand and overseas. Our second presenter is Dr. Toril Papi, uh, the Director, Structures Design, Review and Standards at the Department of Transport and Main Roads, Queensland. Prior to that, uh, Toril was a Technical Director and Team Lead, Bridges and Structures uh, with Aircom, uh, who won the contract to develop these guidelines. Toril has over 20 years of experience as a civil, structural and bridge engineer across a broad number of sectors, uh, including consulting, construction, uh, public service and academia. And our third presenter is Peter Shaw, who is currently a director at FMA Engineering Services. He has over 40 years of experience, including 27 years in Brisbane City Council, involved in all aspects um, of the management of the council's structural assets. Since moving to private practice, Peter has been working closely with Queensland Department of Transport and Main Roads to better understand their structural assets um, and improve their management. So welcome to all our presenters, and I will now hand over to Barry. Hi everybody, I'm Barry Wright, NGTA Lead Advisor for Structures. <clears throat> I've been the Project Manager on behalf of Austroads, ACOM won the contract and key members of the team as you've been introduced to already, uh, Toro Pappy as Project Manager and Peter Shaw as Technical Lead will be the other presenters for today. <clears throat> I'd also like to acknowledge the wider team, there was a smaller group from the Bridge Task Force providing more immediate review of the progress of the project. It was then reviewed by the wider Bridge Task Force on behalf of the jurisdictions and ultimately by the Austroads Board. So that's the background and now the, the findings of the project. You always need to start off with the definition. So you have here the ISO 55000 definition of asset management being coordinated activity of an organisation to realise value from assets where the definition and measure of value can vary significantly depending on the service required. Going to the IIMM, <clears> the <throat> systematic and coordinated activities and practices of an organisation to optimally and sustainably deliver on its objectives through the cost-effective life cycle management of assets. 
ISO standards define the high-level generic requirements for asset management, and the IIMM provides guidance focused more on how to do asset management, but across all assets. But it's still quite a generic document. While all standards refer to asset management, we always need to remember that the purpose of the asset is to provide a service, and this is the ultimate driver, rather than the asset itself. There's previously been a switch to activity management in some places, but international standards refer to asset management, so we've, we followed that lead. <clears throat> Bridge has been around for thousands of years, and so has bridge management in some form or other. Asset management emerged as a more formal discipline over 20 years ago. In New Zealand, at least, there was a strong need to ensure that asset managers made adequate financial provision for maintenance and replacement of transport and other important assets required to service communities. There's obviously a huge investment in transport infrastructure alone, and the service it provides is critical to the economy and the community well-being. So maximising asset performance and optimising investment is a no-brainer. So where are we at with that? <clears throat> We've scoured the world trying to find a comprehensive operational bridge asset management system where the system is a collection of processes, standards and activities for asset management as defined by ISO rather than an IT system. We haven't found one. So if anybody listening has got the ultimate working solution, then please contact us. It remains a work in progress and hopefully this guide will assist with that development. <clears throat> But more specifically, there are many and varied asset management standards, guides and documents. They're mostly generic and to cover any and all assets. Therefore, this project was developed to apply asset management more specifically to bridges and the service that they provide. One thing we did find was an apparent use in some places on numerical condition ratings and deterioration modelling. This may well have some useful purpose for the agencies using it. However, the project team wanted to explore this further and provide a more appropriate guidance on this practice. <clears throat> so how are you performing in bridge asset management? One fundamental aspect of asset management is what are you trying to achieve? What are your specific objectives? These objectives will include target levels of service and also asset management system objectives. My experience is that we often are not that specific and this often leads to a lack of clarity when clarity is king. And then how do you measure those objectives? It's not always easy, but if it isn't being measured, then it isn't being managed. Handing over to you, Toral. Thanks, Barry. Okay. So, what I'm going to talk about today is um, some of the context of the project, how we got to where we were. And, um, and then I'll go through an overview of the guide. And so, uh, as Barry mentioned, ACOM was successful in securing the contract. And these are the different stages that we went through to deliver the project. <clears throat> and it starts where all good Austroads projects start, which is a literature review. We then went through a program of consultation with key stakeholders. Then we went through and we started developing the framework or the system of bridge asset management and ultimately it culminated with the development of the guideline. So let's start with what we found out of the literature review. So Barry's already alluded to how wide and far we scaled the depths of and the breadth of the earth. Um, one of the things we decided as a, as a project group is that we recognised there was a large volume of work specifically related to asset management. And so what we were looking for was uh, things that were focused on a holistic asset management guide. And if we found a guide that actually had specific information about bridges, well, excellent. We were going to uh, take that and our job was done. And you can see here some of the guidelines and some of the aspects that we, uh, some of the documents that we reviewed. Um, that's only a small sliver. Um, but there's a nod also to previous Austroads documentation that's been uh, is out there relating to bridge asset management. And what we found, as Barry's already stated, is that we didn't find a holistic framework that captures uh, information specifically for bridge asset management. Um, most of the documents were transport asset management focused or generalistic in nature. Um, but nothing particularly focused on bridges. So things like levels of service weren't particularly well-defined for bridges. Uh, performance management and benchmarking wasn't well-defined. Um, 
a formal risk management process was not well documented, particularly for bridges. And then also we found generally financial management and accountability processes and practices. It was very difficult to find specific guidance on that. So then we embarked on our process of stakeholder consultation. And you can see here, um, we, we spoke to the road agencies here in Australia and New Zealand. And we also went and spoke to a select few jurisdictions internationally. And the premise of our discussions were, well, how are you going with your bridge asset management? We needed to get some data and how satisfied are you with the current state of play? And we were also testing to see um, have you already adopted ISO 55000 in your bridge asset management practices? Are you having a holistic approach to asset management? And what we found is that in most places, um, uh, jurisdictions were aware of ISO 55000. There was uh, policy documents and high level documents to state how ISO 55000 fitted in the general landscape of asset management. But when it came to bridges, things weren't quite so well defined. Um, things like a risk management framework some people were starting to adopt these sorts of things but it was the exception rather than the rule and in fact the, the process was more of a find and fix approach with bridge asset management and looking at um, preserving a bridge to maintain a certain condition state or condition level and the common remark that we got from the road agencies were um, often in developing their um, maintenance programs under that um, premise is that they often got 25% of their funding um, that they originally asked for to carry out maintenance. And so there was a general level of dissatisfaction with the jurisdictions that, that the current system for bridge asset management wasn't working. Um, and that there was also consensus that a need for a new framework was required. Um, and also to translate the requirements of ISO 55000 specifically for bridges. So excellent, we had a project. We confirmed the need for a bridge asset management framework. Um, we as a project team didn't want to reinvent the wheel. We wanted to uh, leverage off um, well-considered, well-researched documents such as the IIIM that has been well-published and recently updated um, by IPRIA. And you can see here our starting point was the framework on the left-hand side that's uh, documented in IIIM. We also wanted to capture the fact that um, the life cycle activities that go on when it comes to bridge asset management. And so we also were incorporating aspects of the Institute of Asset Management that's um, published on the left hand, uh, right hand side of the page here. We also want to dem demonstrate that um, there's a bigger picture um, and that there's corporate and business requirements and objectives and strategies that needs to fit in um, for that line of sight requirement. And then we also wanted to flag that there's a risk asset manager, a risk management approach that needs to be incorporated. So as we were developing this framework, the project team rapidly came to the, uh, the realisation that a research report, which is originally required out of this project, would have been good, it would have captured the learnings, but wouldn't it be a great opportunity to develop a guideline, something that was practical, something that was useful um, to everyone in, explaining what this was all meaning. And so the project team went back in into workshop mode and we started thinking, well, um, if we wanted to develop a guideline, what are the key things that we want to capture? And we wanted to resolve, well, what would bridge asset managers like to see? Um, what are the key messages that we need to say? Um, how do we physically translate the requirements in ISO 55000 specifically for bridges? And what does that all look like? And so after all of this, uh, all of these discussions and some more work and some more writing, um, this is where we've landed today. We're here at the, uh, at the publication of this uh, guideline document of which we're immensely proud of. I can tell you what this guideline is not. It's not a standard, it's not a set of rules. It's not meant to be prescriptive, nor is it meant to be completely comprehensive. Um, and document absolutely every detail of bridge asset management because it's just impossible to do so. But it's intended to provide you, the reader, with succinct and practical guidelines on applying the principles of ISO 55000 to bridge asset management. So we leveraged off uh, the good work in the IIIM um, and there's reference back to that and that, um, that we're only adding bridge specific content to this. 
the guide itself starts with the why. Why do we do bridge asset management? Why do we need bridges? Why? What's the context of bridges specifically for bridge asset management? And how does this differ from other uh, assets such as pavements? Um, we provide some standard definitions in here to try and um, get everybody on the same page and we're talking consistent language. There's examples within the guide that uh, are meant to draw out the, the concepts that are provided in the guideline and there's plenty of other reading material in there for you to uh, dig into as well. What I'd like to do now is to provide you with some, um, some go through the, the framework and the guideline itself. You'll see that this is basically the, the format of the guideline, um, the framework itself, and you can see the reference sections there for your ease of reference to go and find quickly what you need. So this is essentially showing where bridge asset management should sit within an organisation with touch points to the corporate requirements um, and, these, and your asset management objectives more broadly. Um, and basically where the bridge asset management journey should start is in section two, the bridge strategic asset management planning. So this is your scene setting. And essentially what this is, it's important to know um, the key asset management policy objectives that relate to bridges the performance indicators that demonstrate the success of your asset management strategy. And also, are you being successful is your, uh, in your investments? Is it a worthwhile activity? Uh, in recognition of the role that risk plays with bridge asset management, we've placed risk, asset, uh, risk management activities over the top and integrating with all parts of the asset management activities. So that's section three in the yellow box. It highlights the need that engineers should understand and actively manage risks that relate to or affects the performance of bridge assets across its life cycle. And that it needs to relate to a broader risk management framework set out by the organisation. Remember that bridges provide a service to the broader network, it's a part of the network. Section four, the blue box on the left-hand side, that's all about understanding the number and the form of your, bridges, your bridge assets that you have and the required operational function of these bridges in the broader network. So understanding this now and into the future and how your asset is performing against your predetermined asset management objectives, thus can inform your planning and investment strategies. A key message out of this section is that it's importance of data and understanding all aspects of your bridges in the broader network. Understanding how a structure behaves and the structural actions that need to be managed is fundamental to setting up a robust and informed bridge asset management strategy. A key and regular activity uh, that consumes most time for bridge managers, asset managers, is the planning and decision making related to life cycle activities. This is shown in the green box in the centre of the framework diagram and guidance is provided in sections five, six and seven. These sections have been developed to provide guidance on how to build a program of works for bridges, uh, keeping, in keeping with sound asset management principles and highlighting the different drivers and processes to be adopted for maintenance and capital renewal programs. To explain this concept better, we've developed a diagram that you can see on the right-hand side. It's simplistic in nature and it recurs frequently throughout the guide. And it demonstrates that the asset has a financial value that needs to be managed over its expected service life. It is the goal or perhaps the requirement of the bridge manager to demonstrate that an appropriate level of investment is being made to maintain the bridge so that it reaches its expected service life at its current level of service. The ideal is shown by the orange line and it's typically defined as uh, operational expenditure activities. If the required maintenance isn't carried out, well, the consequence is that it, you potentially won't reach the expected service life and early renewal might be required. And this is demonstrated by the purple line in this diagram. The difference between the purple and the orange lines is what we know as maintenance backlog, or in other words, activities that should have been done or should be done to achieve the service life, or so the bridge achieves its service life, but remains unfunded. Bridge-specific works that are carried to uplift the level of service of the bridge or extend its life are shown by the green line and are typically defined as capital expenditure activities. Guidance on the financial management and funding requirements is provided in section eight, which is the red box you can see in the centre. 
And then we make heavy references to the principles provided in the Australian Infrastructure Financial Management Manual by, published by IPWIA and the public service sector, uh, sector standards required by the Australian Accounting Standards Board. Some commentaries provided about project delivery, um, which is an important part of asset management in section nine, the light blue box on the right. And the entire process of asset management for bridges is underpinned by various enablers, C section 11, the orange box underneath. So these are things like your organization and your people, asset management plans and things like your systems and your tools to help you do your job with asset management. And the framework itself is completed by section 11, which highlights the need to have a continual improvement process and a review process in all of your asset management activities, um, which includes auditing, reporting and benchmarking. So that's the framework in a nutshell um, and the guideline in a nutshell, as you can imagine, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, and I'll hand over to Barry and Peter in a, in a moment, but um, I just want to remind people that if you have questions, please make sure that you pop them into the uh, chat function. And if there's a specific slide that you have that you want us to look at, um, uh, please reference that in there as well and we'll make sure we'll get that question answered for you. Over to you, Barry. Now for the results. <clears throat> in summary, the core SE management system elements include an appropriate description of the asset, the service required and demand for that service, which is the performance of the asset, the physical state of the asset, any significant risks, and also current and future costs of maintaining the asset. <clears throat> Firstly, description. You need to define the bridge asset with relevant parameters that might be required to justify provision of services, costs, or to identify risks, etc., etc. So, this, there's a number of these identified in the guides. The number of bridges is, is a simple standard descriptor. Then, if you take deck area of bridges, that adds another dimension to the scope and value for the scope and value of the asset. There's material types. Uh, as a descriptor, timber in particular is a key parameter because of the higher engineering demands and, and costs for timber bridges. So then <clears throat> having those key factors, the growth or key changes to the asset over the time are also important base information. So you, you can understand where you're at in a particular time, where you've come from, where you might be going to in the future. So it can be used to predict and or justify changes in service, condition and costs. So you want to know that your asset for example, has grown by 20% of value over the last years, 10 years, and that timber bridges have remained constant or, or whatever. It's, it's just simply understanding what you have and where you're going. The purpose of the asset is to provide a service, and so the demand for that service is relevant to the management of the asset. The key level of service for a bridge is the live load capacity, potentially in terms of legal load limits, permit load limits maybe, and also posted load limits maybe. The demand generally follows a hierarchy and so it's logical that the level of service provided also follows that hierarchy and so meets the demand at least cost. Increasing vehicle masses and increasing volumes of heavy vehicles will potentially increase the applied bridge live loads. As an example, in New Zealand over the last 10 years, high productivity motor vehicles with increased axle and gross weights have been allowed onto the network. While bridges have been verified as having the required safe ultimate live load capacity, the increased loads have resulted in greater damage because of serviceability issues with cracking of reinforced concrete decks and beam joint separation section, often due to poor construction quality and detailing, but the ultimate capacity was fine. Ideally, we should be able to define and report on the demand of the bridge asset at some level over time, so this helps to understand and justify increasing maintenance costs or changes in performance. Bridge widths, vertical clearance and safety barriers can also be considered to be, as contributing to levels of service. However, these are more directly related to the routes and the road, not the structure, and so generally should be considered as part of road asset management. Bridge levels of service in the guide relate primarily, primarily to structural performance. The standard asset management approach for performance includes understanding the demand, identifying the gaps between the demand and the performance, developing a business case for improvements to close the identified gaps. This is a diagram that I had up before. <clears throat> I'm talking about bridge condition. It's a measure of the physical state of the bridge and is not necessarily related to the performance, but can be. 
You can have a brand new bridge in excellent condition that can only carry pedestrians and cyclists, for example. Conversely, you can have a very old bridge in poor condition that can still safely carry full legal live loads. So the condition is of great interest often to auditors who want to know of any current or future liabilities. The diagram demonstrates that a bridge has a theoretical economic life, as Toral pointed out previously. It requires various maintenance activities to achieve that life. If these activities are not carried out, then the life will be reduced. The backlog is, is defined as the value of work required to achieve the theoretical life, but which not, has, not, has not been funded. So, <clears throat> numerical condition ratings potentially provide a high level measure of bridge condition over time, but these are based solely on a visual inspection with no specialist inspections or engineering investigation. Don't take into account, there's no account taken of design, material strengths, cover, and that sort of thing. They do not take account of hidden defects, not identified understanded visual inspections, and the Siri guide, I think, has identified 42 potential hidden defects. <clears throat> Deterioration modelling to forecast costs would theoretically require models with many variables to accurately reflect different designs, material strengths, cover, exposure conditions, cost rates, etc. If significant maintenance work is required, then detailed engineering investigations and assessments are still required anyway. So in New Zealand, we trial the numerical rating approach, but it's discontinued because the results were of no real value to us. So a possible comparative example could be the condition of a car, for example. So to describe the car condition is 65 out of 100, what does that tell you? But if you say the car is 10 years old, has an excellent engine, a good paint job, worn tyres and faulty brakes, then people get a better understanding of the actual physical condition. So a possible measure of that condition could be the cost of the work to fix the brakes and replace the tyres, say. So the guide promotes an engineering approach from the bottom up. In summary, it involves determining current and future asset needs and associated costs. These can be developed based on lifecycle management plans from the bottom up, but also certainly need some top-down moderation. It would be great to have a single number for condition out of 100, say, but in our view that doesn't work very well. However, the specific number could be the summary of current and future asset costs, probably by work category. Over to you, Peter. Thanks, Barry. Uh, the framework shown here is uh, what's included in the guideline, and it's based on uh, the IIMM and ISO 31000. ISO 31000 defines risk as the effect of uncertainty on objectives and can be positive or negative. So right at the start, the assessor is focused on objectives. So the first box on the left-hand side of the framework is about establishing the risk context. So an organisation should have a risk policy and a set of objectives. Uh, but most importantly is the organisational risk appetite. The risk appetite should set out the organisation tolerance to uh, risk. So it might have uh, a low tolerance to risk which impact safety, but on the other hand, it may be prepared to accept some degree of risk, uh, for example, of innovation and innovative products and so on. The second step is to identify risks, and uh, I'll talk about that more in the next slide. The third box about assessing and evaluating risk, most people would be familiar with uh, attending a risk management workshop where they identify risks and then talk about likelihood and consequences, and then combine them all using the organisation's risk ratings matrix and so on. Uh, it's important to focus on uh, the consequences uh, of risks. And finally, the uh, treatments need to be established and everything documented in risk registers or, or structure management plans. I'd like to uh, note at this point that should an uncontrolled event occur, an organisation's approach to risk management will be viewed through the lens of so far as reasonably practicable. And what that means is, did the organisation do everything reasonably practicable in order to prevent the risk from the, or the event 
from happening. Uh, the likelihood is irrelevant at that point in time. In understanding risk, uh, particularly related to uh, potential collapse mechanisms, the engineer needs to, to work through uh, what uh, collapse might look like. And so a load on a bridge exceeding the design load does not equal collapse. Uh, a component of a bridge reaching yield does not necessarily collapse either. The engineer needs to understand the formation of the plastic hinges and the development of mechanisms uh, for potential collapse. And by so doing, uh, the engineer will become familiar with uh, whether collapse is ductile and progressive or whether it's brittle and catastrophic. In the former case, uh, the asset can be managed through inspection and by focusing on those components which are, are vital to the support of the structure. But in the latter case, the asset owner will need to have a, a larger margin between the applied loads and the assessed capacity. Those bridges which uh, have no redundancy are obviously a higher risk uh, as the whole of the structure is likely to collapse as opposed to a structure with uh, high degrees of redundancy where collapse may only be partial. Resilience is about how quickly an asset can be put back into service or whether there's alternatives available. Components of a bridge uh, which are not inspectable are a higher risk than uh, those that are and can be managed. A particular challenge for the asset owner would be old steel bridges uh, where fatigue may be an issue and specialist engineering advice would be required to determine how far down the fatigue cycle and so on and how to manage the asset. A risk that is unique to bridges is the carrying of, of heavy vehicles. Not only is there a potential for collapse as shown in the photo on the right, but there's also potentially impacts on the service life of the bridge. A useful tool for uh, assessing risk is the bow tie. The loss of control event is placed at the centre of the bow tie, for example, a bridge strike, and causes a lift down the left-hand side, which could be overheight vehicle, low bridge, or poor vertical geometry. Consequences are listed down the right-hand side, which could be damage, uh, failure, or uh, loss of uh, access to the road. And then preventative controls are identified for each of the causes, and uh, reactive controls or mitigations are identified to deal with the, the consequences. Obviously, preventative controls are better than reactive controls. So good asset management is not about seeing defects and replacing defects. As issues identified and then investigated, they need to be sorted into whether they impact safety, level of service, legal compliance, or whether they're just condition only and impact the, the whole of life costs of the, the asset. Clearly there's an obligation to meet legal compliances and safety will be reviewed through the the risk management process mentioned previously, and the level of service is what the customers expect. That's the whole reason that the asset is there. An example of condition only uh, can be sorted through uh, a net present value uh, assessment. An example might be um, steel girders with corrosion of the flange near the support, where moment is, is very small and shear is carried through the web. In that case, it may be convenient to uh, delay any work on uh, managing that uh, issue. It's important that engineering review uh, occur of, of options and so on to make sure that they meet organisational objectives and that they make sense uh, and deal with all the appropriate risks. There's a prioritisation process and optimisation. By optimisation, uh, we mean that uh, issues which uh, have some similarities, so there may be two bridges in close proximity to each other that have 
similar issues and require the same skill set to address. And so it may be uh, beneficial then to organise the uh, maintenance of those two structures at the same time. With funding applications, it is really important to be able to translate the engineering concepts into language suitable for decision makers. So that means using very simple terminology, uh, using matter of fact language, being very clear about the consequences of doing or not doing things and, and what the funding implications are. That's important not to be alarmist and to use terms that uh, they don't understand. And of course, following the funding review, uh, which of course you've been very successful at, then you'll prepare the operational plans, renewal plans and maintenance plan. However, if you're not successful and you have decreased funding, uh, you have to optimise where you uh, focus your attention. So the first thing that's likely to be impacted is the life cycle costs. So the costs will be kicked down the road, potentially leading to a higher pile of life cycle costing. As uh, funding decreases further, the next thing that's likely to be impacted is the level of service. So that may mean load posting a bridge and safety would be the, the last thing and ultimately closure of the bridge would have to be considered. This slide, I just wanted to emphasize the, the role of engineering uh, for management of bridges. Uh, it's throughout the guideline. In fact, we have included the term in the title. So engineering is required in the investigation, the development of options, the review of those options and whether risk has been properly assessed and mitigated. And of course, engineering analysis investigation requires good quality quantitative data in order to, to make good decisions. There's a few uh, takeaway messages we want to really leave you with. The first is that the function of the bridge is to provide a service. It exists as part of the road network and its role has to be viewed within the context of the road network. Uh, a bridge is a very complex structural engineering asset and the engineering must be understood in order to be able to manage risks and optimise asset maintenance. The structural form is key here not the appearance. Uh, so you need to understand how the structure is actually performance. Uh, appearances can be deceiving. The level of service relates to the customer's expectations. A customer does not understand what a T44 bridge is. So T44 is not a level of service. Uh, the customer wants to know what uh, level of, what weight of vehicle can be moved across and so on. And the structural capacity of the bridge to carry those heavy vehicles is a key uh, aspect for bridge engineers. It's unique to bridges. Decisions must be justified with quantitative data using simple matter of fact language, which is not alarmist, uh, setting out all the consequences and the benefits of, of expenditure. And of course, money talks. Dollars are the universal language, whether they be NZ or AU, but at the end of the day, it's all about providing the required level of service to the customers at the minimum cost while managing risks. And at that point, we'll leave it open for questions. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, and thank you very much, Toril and Barry. We're just waiting for you. Thanks so much for such an interesting presentation and all your work you put into developing this very important guideline. Um, so Sally, it is over to you now uh, to moderate the Q&A and I will be in the background helping you to jump to any particular slides when you need me. Thank you. Um, I'll start off by asking a question uh, that came uh, that came into us from Torrell's um, earlier section. 
So with a bridge approaching zero financial value towards its end of service life, while it's still providing a design service, how can maintenance funding be justified? Is this to do with our little diagram? Yes, pretty much. Um, and I think it's more from the financial perspective. So um, it's still providing the um, design service though. So I think the point is it probably does still have some financial value. I'm going to handball this one to Peter. <laughs> yeah, okay. If it, so the diagram was uh, meant to be diagrammatic. Uh, we've had some debates, so shouldn't the curve be have a curve because assets deteriorate in a, in a curvilinear fashion, but accountants depreciate things in a linear way. And I think the question refers to you know, the residual value of the asset. Uh, mm an asset's only worth what someone else will pay for it. And normally the residual value is negative. It costs you to take it away and dispose of it. Uh, the question I think it also mentioned uh, whether spending maintenance money on it. And that's the whole point of this is that uh, as you get towards the end of the life, spending money to maintain it in an as new condition is not money well spent. Uh, if the asset is to be replaced, then uh, you only need to spend the minimum to maintain level, level of service and meet the safety requirements and those legal obligations. If I could just I jump just, I think the end of the economic life. The end of the economic life is, is defined as when it costs more to uh, maintain it than replace the bridge. And so, yeah, we, we do a, uh, Present value end of life analysis, and whenever it does cost more on an NPV basis to maintain the bridge and replace it, then you've reached the end of the economic life. And I guess this is why it pays to understand, um, you know, understand your asset, understand your bridge, knowing what you're meant to be maintaining. Um, and there's, you know, we have these definitions of service life and design life, and uh, history's proven over and over again, obviously, that uh, bridges last. A lot longer than 100 years. Sometimes they last less. So, um, yeah, I hope that answers the question. Yeah, there are actually a few questions along those lines, um, even about how you determine the length of service life, because we have all of these old bridges, and um, but they're not really likely to be decommissioned, especially if they're heritage listed. So, yeah, there's been quite a few um, questions coming in around that. So, I think you've covered a few of those points. Um, I'll go another one. Um, I'll go to Toral here. Um, what key data requirements do you need to effectively manage bridge assets? Oh, that's a good one. Um, well, there's many different things you can um, you can collect. I can't remember the section in the guide, but there's a, there's a part in there that talks about some of the fundamentals. But um, you know, some of the data that you want is you you know you want to make sure that you've got your bridge drawings on hand. Um, that can be useful information. Understanding the type and the family group of your bridges. Understanding how it structurally performs. How old is it? The material type. Um, how much maintenance you're spending on it and what's the historical uh, maintenance spend on this bridge, for example. Um, knowing how much the bridge, uh, the value of the bridge is and how it's depreciating, that's really important. Uh, Barry, Peter, any, any other key data points we want to collect? Well, I think there's some information in the guide about that and I suppose we collect hundreds of fields of data because we can make use of it. But then I suppose we try and go from a top-down basis. What do we need to manage the asset? What do we need to determine the condition? How do we understand performance? All those sort of things. But then I've managed local authorities as well, and they've got a spreadsheet with 20 fields. So that still can be enough to get a pretty good handle on your network. Um, so, but every extra field you add, you add possibility of error and, and uh, omissions. Mm -hmm. So, you want to discuss that, you want to consider that carefully and as I say work from the top down to determine what you need to do and then what data you need to do that. Anything you want to add Peter? Yeah I'll just add uh, recording who uses the bridge, how many crossings there are, whether this bridge has been inundated through flood and so on, uh, damage that's occurred to the bridge, uh, that collapse that was shown in, the, in one of the slides, that bridge had been damaged 
uh, a couple of times previously and repaired, uh, you'd want to document that and, and pay keen attention to it. So it again, it comes back to there's no uh, one size fits all. You need to understand your asset and you need to uh, collect data that will help you to understand and manage the asset. Thank you for that. Um, next question. A bridge needs to be considered more than just abutment to abutment. Does your holistic framework for bridge management include the segment of the approach pavement as this is a major source of impact loading from heavy vehicles? So just a question, I guess, on the scope of what the document covers. Who'd like to answer? Is that one for Barry, maybe? <laughs> I'd say not explicitly, but if it's part of the overall performance and it's impacting on the, the loading mm. on the bridge, then obviously that should be considered and um, and, and addressed sort of thing. I, I just mm. remind, uh, I'll just add that remember the bridge is part of a road network uh, and it only exists to be part of that road. So it needs to be managed so that the, um, I think what's referring to is the roughness and so on of the approach can impact the bridge. But the uh, bridge asset owner needs to work very closely with the road asset manager. Uh, the, there are many levels of service that people ascribe to the, a bridge really relate to a road. And uh, mm. horizontal alignment, design speeds, uh, road rideability and so on. Uh, so the bridge has to be managed in the context of the road. Yep, thank you for that. Uh, this one's probably for you, Peter. Um, do we need more permanent long-term monitoring on, of our assets? So they're talking about permanent monitoring here. Well, uh, so this gets back to the data question. And uh, I always start, well, how are you going to use the data? Uh, there's no point collecting data if you don't know what you're going to do with it. So the, it needs to inform uh, what decision making that you're likely to make. Uh, and that will then dictate what data you want to collect and where you want to collect it and, and so on. Uh, I don't think there's any point of just monitoring a bridge for the sake of monitoring it if you never do anything with the data. Uh, you need to sort of start at the back end of what's important to collect uh, and then uh, set up your data collection scheme to suit. Okay, can I add to something here? I, I think that um, I mean, there's a lot of focus on structural health monitoring or bridge monitoring techniques these days and it, it should be stated that that is not a silver bullet here um, and that um, as an asset owner or an asset manager you still need to demonstrate that due diligence that you're managing your structure um, and structural health monitoring these sorts of techniques can be really useful but as Peter said um, knowing what data you've got um, and how you're going to use it it's stepping into that gap once you have the data and the decision that you need to make on that structure um, that's where really the, the the type of data that you've got and what the how the bridge behaves understanding how the asset performs that's when that really comes into play and you might be able to get away with something very simplistic in terms of monitoring um, and getting that sort of data. Okay, uh, is there an expectation by clients that new assets are maintenance free? Do we do proper long-term whole of life costings of our projects to allow for operations and maintenance costs as part of design development? Um, so I guess that's a question of what do we do now typically, but also what should we do? Hmm. Well, I'd say we should do that. Whether it's whether it's being done consistently by all parties at all times is probably uh, probably not. Um, and so we do attempt to include um, or consider, you know, the safety and design aspect for uh, looking after subsequent inspections and all that sort of thing, and um, life cycle costs, making sure they're not excessive. So it should be being done, but I'm not sure it always is. I'd agree with Barry. Uh, it, it should be done. I think the approach of many uh, designers or uh, 
asset owners actually who are receiving the asset is to try and get a maintenance free asset as much as possible. So they'll try to put as much cost into the capital investment in, in the new asset in order to avoid uh, having to get recurrent expenditure downstream. That's not necessarily the best outcome. Okay, so um, Barry, I think you touched on condition ratings um, in the discussion, but there have been a few questions coming in about um, whether we still see value in using condition ratings. And then also um, how often um, should these be assessed and should they be different for different asset types? Do you want to go first, Barry, or? <laughs> well, I'll Barry, go first. No, comes Barry. We tried. I came to the agency about 10 years ago and an, an auditor had been around and said, um, where's your condition rating system? What's your condition of your asset? And so someone's run around and designed a system, they rolled it out, and we had people doing condition ratings of not to six or something like that. And But it wasn't telling us anything, you know, uh, and uh, so, Try to work out what it actually means, and uh, ag aggregating all the things together, sort of uh, in an a algorithm, it never gives a nice, neat answer. So, and everywhere I've looked around the world, I, I can't find what what specific use it can be, except for a very high level indicator. And so, in the states, if they've got 10% of their bridges uh, structurally obsolete, then over 20 years they can tell whether they've got 15% or I've got down to 5%. So at a high, very high level, you could say it could be some sort of measure, but that takes a lot of work to get to that uh, to that outcome. And uh, it could be done by an engineering approach as far as I'm concerned. So, And there's also a paper from the Federal Highways Association in the early 2000s, I think it was, that sort of said the, they have ratings of 0 to 10 over there. And uh, it wasn't unusual to get a difference of two ratings between two different inspectors. So um, I, I just can't see any anything any value in it except for a very high level quantitative assessment. I'd just add that um, I agree with Barry uh, and it's been problematic certainly in the UK. Uh, they've now moved to engineers undertaking the inspections. Uh, and uh, it, at the end of the day, it can only be high level. To distill something as complex as a bridge down to a single number, uh, it's got to be problematic. Uh, it, it's, to use Barry's example, would you buy a car based on a rating of 65 out of 100? Uh, it might be okay at a, at a first vetting level, but an, before you start spending money, you'll need to, to drill down in far more detail uh, to understand how the money is going to be spent and and to get greater granularity and and how you're managing the asset, so I think fundamentally it can only ever be a high level uh, view of the of the asset. Um, and I guess this is why in the guide we would um, I mean we spent a lot of time talking about this when we were developing the the guideline document of. Um, what alternatives would there be to measure the, the physical state of an asset or the physical state of a bridge? And this is why we've come up with a couple of suggestions here that you can see on the slide and the, and the guideline provides some further context on this. Because remember, we're trying to understand where is this bridge on that orange line coming down? And am I spending the right amount of money? Am I spending too little? Am I going to meet the service life of this bridge? So, um, you know, just to reiterate what everybody has said so far, it, it's it's really the condition score system, it, it can be useful, but um, really what we're after is quantifiable data to inform your decision making. And when you do that, you're more likely to be um, justifying what investment you really do need. Yes, in the end, it's money talks. Okay. Um, Ekaterina, I might just get you to jump to slide 41. Uh, there was a question on level of service and how this is best balanced um, with supply and demand. So I'll just elaborate on that a bit and maybe ask if there are, um, if you extend the 
the level of service by running heavier vehicles on the bridge, um, but you're not going to adjust the maintenance regime, what does that mean for you? Okay, um, potentially it can mean a reduced life. Uh, so mm -hmm. there's um, an asset owner can make a conscious decision to run heavier vehicles, uh, but first uh, they'll need to ensure that the, they're still operating in a safe regime and there are international and Australian standards uh, on how to do that. Uh, but uh, you don't get something for nothing and potentially uh, the asset, uh, if you're not going to spend extra, then the asset life could be dramatically reduced. And the then you also way. get to see, oh, sorry Peter, I was just going to say the extra things you start seeing then, um, if you start running these sorts of um, additional loads is that you might start seeing your maintenance, um, you know, increase. So the frequency of replacing your expansion joints or you might see that your bearings are starting to fail earlier in their life or it might be the cracking up of your uh, concrete deck on your bridges. So as Peter said, you don't get something for nothing. But I'd just like to add that, that in New Zealand, our design load is sort of 20% higher than the current legal load. So if it's a new bridge designed to higher levels, then you might be getting your, what you designed for. So and a lot of bridges uh, don't suffer from fatigue. And, and so if it's demonstrated to be safe to carry that load, then increased number of frequency of loads doesn't necessarily um, you know, reduce the structural life. But as I, as I said in my slide, I think on one of those slides, it's there are serviceability issues that can arise and construction defects that then get, or oh, that's what we've found, it starts highlighting uh, construction uh, issues and uh, and other detailing problems that while it can carry the, the uh, older load safely, uh, other things do show up. So we have had increased costs. Thanks for that. Um, we just, we. Uh, running out of time a little bit, um, there are a lot of questions coming through, which I understand um, uh, Ekaterina can um, clarify this, but I think they'll be addressed later. But uh, I'll just finish with one final one, because uh, there's obviously a lot of content here and um, you've all got a lot, lot to say on the topic. Are there any areas of research or areas of further explanation that have come out of this work? Is that one for me? <laughs> Sure, Peter. Uh, <laughs> well, Why not go for certainly, it? Yeah, understanding uh, a bridge's capability, as, as I've said in the slide about risk, uh, the design load applied of used to design a bridge doesn't necessarily mean that's what it's capable of doing. Uh, mm. AS 5100.7, as it is in Australia, is really just a rating guide. Uh, against design criteria. Uh, Australia doesn't really have a, uh, a guideline for assessing the actual capability. Uh, as I said, you know, exploring things like plastic collapse and, and those sorts of things and, and exploring that, uh, re reducing the conservatism, I guess, that's uh, allowable in design. Uh, there are examples available overseas of uh, assessment guides and they're quite strong that assessment and design are not the same thing. And uh, so there's a project before us roads at the moment to uh, to try and develop a, a guideline and, and collect the experiences for all the state road authorities in Australia and New Zealand and uh, collect them together to, to help people to, to work in this space. I'll just add quickly that I'd like to see it taken to the next level to def def specifically define the actual, all the elements and activities and documentation, etc., required for a, a full asset management system, which might comply with ISO and to have that, I think we've taken one step towards that, but we haven't, there's still more work to do. Continual improvement process. <laughs> all right. What a great Thanks note to so finish much. on. 
exactly. <laughs> um, thanks so much, everybody, and thanks so much, Sally. Uh, yes, as Sally said, uh, we will answer the remaining questions in writing and we'll send a copy of the response to everybody um, after the webinar. So uh, thanks again to our presenters for uh, your time and uh, very interesting presentation. Um, and I just have a couple of slides to finish the session. Um, just a few words about our future sessions. Tomorrow we will talk about the updates uh, to the Guide to Road Tunnels. So if uh, register for this session, if you haven't already. Um, in April, we will have a session on uh, capability building in network operations planning. Um, and in June, uh, there will be a session about a new book uh, on the history of the world's uh, pavements. Um, did I get it right? I don't think so. Uh, so the book here, yeah, that's in May, and in June we will have a session uh, on the design and construction um, guidelines for large cantilever and gantry structures. Um, and as usual, uh, when we close out today's session, there will be a questionnaire uh, that will pop up on your screen. So please take a couple of minutes to fill it in. Let us know what you think about the session, what you liked, what you didn't like. Uh, we do read it all and it helps us to um, shape our future webinar program. Um, and after the session, uh, in a few days, you will receive a follow-up email with the link to the recording of today's session. So thanks again, everybody uh, stay well and safe um, and enjoy the rest of your day and we will see you next time. See ya.